Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego lived in Judah a long time ago. <laughs> All right, this is the best podcast I've ever done. <laughs> We've arrived. This is Yana, and welcome to Access Ideas. Today I'm speaking with Lucas Cantor, a podcaster, composer, producer, multi-instrumentalist, and speaker. Lucas hosts his own show, The Book Society Podcast, which features weekly conversations with fascinating guests. Lucas and I are both hooked on great storytelling and popular history. And today's conversation is a great example of how rereading a book that we love draws us down a winding path of intrigue and ideas. Lucas has reread Babylon, Mesopotamia, and the Birth of Civilization by Paul Krivacek several times. And we explore the reasons why this topic is so fascinating. We cover thousands of years of Mesopotamian history and mythology, and Lucas makes some intriguing connections to Gillian Jaynes' 1976 book, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And now I bring you Lucas Cantor. Welcome to Access Ideas, Lucas. You're the host of the Book Society podcast. Tell us a bit about yourself and why listeners should check out your podcast. Well, my podcast is it's not dissimilar to this podcast. So right there, if you like this one, you're probably going to like mine. But I invite a distinguished guest on every week. We read a book that is one of their favorites or a book that has changed their life or that they have some expertise in. They, they choose it. I read it too. And we talk about it for an hour or so. So I like to tell people that if you don't know what to read next, if you just pick any book on my podcast, you're going to probably like it. And I guarantee that if you pick any random three, you will love at least one of them. Awesome. And you really open it up to fiction and nonfiction, yeah? I Yeah, I don't have any rules for who, for what you pick. So I just, I pick the guest and then I tell them that the book choice is theirs. Usually they'll get back to me right away. Sometimes They'll get back to me with a like a list of a few books, and in that case, I I just pick the first one because I assume that's you know I so I, I don't really have any rules for what people choose. Yeah, I've read all kinds of strange books. I did a year recap a few uh, you know on New Year's yeah where it talks about some of the books I had I you know just found that I and how I felt about them. I listened to that. That was really good. Yeah, it's uh I I, I tend to have a lot of authors, and I also tend to get guests in groups like I'll have one guest and then they'll recommend a few other people and so I end up interviewing people who are sort of mm -hmm. in similar life uh career type places it all in a row which is fun right now there's been a lot of authors um we're gonna dive into a couple of philosophers there's a over the summer I'm gonna have a lot of poets and it's all just because friends refer friends nice and yeah it's a lot of fun it's a really fun podcast well, I can certainly vouch for it. And I've had Lucas on the podcast before with the Audiobook Reviews in Five Minutes podcast. And one of the ideas that he planted in my brain was the idea of rereading a book that you loved, whether as a child or a younger adult, and what it's like to revisit that book. And specifically, um, you have insights as an older person um, or an older adult, if you read it as a young adult. And I couldn't let that idea go. I kept thinking about it and wondering what book should I return to? What should I reread? So I reconnected with Lucas and I wanted to 
bring this up again as a topic for a conversation. And Lucas picked Babylon, Mesopotamia, and the Birth of Civilization by Paul Krivichek. And in a nutshell, it tells the story of ancient Mesopotamia from the earliest settlements around 5400 BC to the eclipse of Babylon by the Persians in the 6th century BC. And the author chronicles the rise and fall of dynastic power throughout this period. And what I particularly enjoyed were some of the references to myth and the comparisons to modern day socio-political setups and and dynasties. Um, So I listened to this audiobook for the first time. So unlike Lucas, I'm not revisiting it. And I listened to the audiobook by Derek Perkins, who is as close to a gold standard as it gets when it comes to audiobook narration, just impeccable. And Lucas, I'd love to hear a little more about why you chose this title, why it made such an impression on you to the point where you thought it was worth revisiting 12 years after it came out. Yeah, I've read it. I've probably read it four times, I think. Also, I want to agree with you that Derek Perkins, I think, is one of the greatest audiobook readers ever, and especially for history and especially for ancient history. He's just got the mm-hmm. right voice and intonation for all that stuff. But I came across this book actually because of a podcast. Many years ago, when was this? I don't know, probably 2015. I think it was before I got married. So 2015, mm-hmm. let's say. A friend of mine told me about this podcast called The History of Rome by this guy, Mike Duncan, who was a just a professor who decided to kind of go through Gibbon's History of Rome and add his own narrativization to it. And it became a fairly famous podcast. I think most listeners probably have at least heard of it. And it starts with, uh, in about 500, he starts with the Aeneid, which is the, the Romanization of the Odyssey, and tells the history of Rome that in approximately six or 700 BC, BCE, one of the heroes of the Trojan War, so I guess it would have been seven or 800 BCE, one of the heroes of the Trojan War ended up in that part of Italy at the bend in the Tiber and was a king, gave birth to two sons who were then sent out into the wilderness because they were prophesied to slay their father or something like that. And they ended up being Romulus and Remus who founded Rome. Right. Right. So I thought that was really interesting. I listened to the whole history of Rome, which goes up to about 200 CE. And I just wondered, well, what happened before this? And so I read that other book by uh, Richard Miles, which Derek Perkins narrated, called Carthage Must Be Destroyed. And this starts in Tyre, because the Carthaginians were called um, Phoenicians. So I think everybody, everybody knows, not everybody knows, but (laughs) Carthage is where like modern day Morocco is. And the reason that it's not there anymore is because the Romans thoroughly destroyed it. They put salt in the soil. Yep. But if you were to look at a map, you would see where Carthage is and where Rome is. And you would think those two cities are going to go to war over Sicily because it's right in between them. And mm-hmm. that is indeed what happened. And the, the Punic Wars are, you know, sort of famous Roman. If you know anything about Rome, you know that there were Punic Wars. And yeah. so Carthage must be destroyed goes into the history of the Punic Wars and where these people came from. And they came from a place called Tyre, which is on the Levant. And there's a whole history of that, of that city. And then after reading that, I thought, well, okay, how did those people get there? And that is what led me to Babylon. It is the earliest history we have. It right. is the history of Mesopotamia. And it's uh, Mesopotamia for, I think, probably most listeners remember from social studies that it's the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates. More specifically, it's modern day Iraq, Iran, Syria, Afghanistan. And it is where 
it, they call it the cradle of civilization. It's unclear whether that is literally true, but it is at least figuratively, or it's at least in somewhat true in as the cradle of modern civilization or yeah. of our civilization, Western Based civilization. Based on the historic record that we have access to now and the artifacts, yeah. Yeah, and one of the interesting things, I mean, Paul Krivichek is such a brilliant writer, and he has this great style of sort of hitting you with really interesting facts early on, so you, so it sucks you in. And one of the things he says is that if you consider history to be written history, then fully half of it takes place in Mesopotamia. Because, because we have so much writing. Yeah, well, because writing the, the when they found the when they found these stone tablets, these clay tablets, it pushed back the date of the invention of writing by about two thousand years. That's right. Yeah, we yeah. assumed until the nineteenth um, century 19th that century. the Greeks invented writing, but they didn't. Yeah. So, um, and I love the fact yeah. that we have all of these tablets full of um, school exercises. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Mesopotamia, there's there's also, because this is a book about archaeology, and uh, Krivichek wasn't an archaeologist, but I've read a lot of archaeological accounts of this period and of this time. And the thing that I think people either forget or don't know is that archaeology is incredibly political. Mm. And it's, um, it's incredibly, this is why Indiana Jones was always fighting Nazis. Because archaeology is all about politics, and it's all about establishing the story of your nation. And so when these ruins were first discovered, people were not inherently interested in them because it's ruins of a civilization. Uh, sorry, by people, I mean British people, because that's who was doing archaeology at the time, yeah. right? And so British people were not inherently into them. And what happened was a um, they started, and they didn't know that the tablets that they found were even writing. They thought that they were just some weird art because cuneiform yeah. was a totally unknown script. So yeah, people weren't inherently interested in Mesopotamian archaeology, but what happened was a banknote engraver named George Smith, who had a knack for patterns, I guess, ended mm -hmm. up just stopping by the British Museum, hanging out and looking at these tablets, and he started sort of seeing some patterns and figured out how to translate these tablets. And luckily for him, and luckily for all of us who are fans of Mesopotamian archaeology, and all of us who are human beings and would like to know where our civilization came from, the first, one of the first tablets that he translated turned out to be something that looked a lot like a flood myth. And mm. turned out to be something that looked a lot like, a lot like Noah's Ark, the myth of Noah's Ark that we have in the Hebrew Bible. And so because that was related to Christianity and therefore in the minds of 19th century Britons related to their own history, they thought... In popular culture. Yeah, let's yeah. fund an expedition. And so the Daily Telegraph, a British newspaper, actually funded the expedition because they thought this will make great copy. And that sure. um, those expeditions are where we really started to find some of the interesting things in Mesopotamian archaeology. And I think that it was a Daily Telegraph expedition that found Ashurbanipal's palace. Maybe we'll get to a little later in the podcast who he was, but his palace was important because he had a library. And at that time, a library was, you know what, for your listeners, we should back up and just say what Mesopotamians wrote on and why we know mm -hmm. what they wrote on. So they wrote on clay tablets. So they would make a, a big square or a rectangular tablet out of wet clay, and then they would mark it with a stylus and then bake it. So it basically turns into a, a rock you know, it mm -hmm. turns into a piece of pottery. And in the Mesopotamian sun or sand underneath, you know, years and millennia of detritus, those things are actually preserved very, very well. So once exactly. we deciphered the writing, we realized that we had records of this entire civilization. 
And uh, we haven't even today deciphered even like 10% of what we found. So mm-hmm. yeah, so anyway, so that's how we ended up in, that's how the West ended up interested in Mesopotamian archaeology is that by chance, we discovered a myth that approximated one of our own myths. And then we realized that Abraham, the oldest character in the Bible who is thought to be possibly historical, lived sort of in the middle of a civilization that had been going on for thousands of years. One of the great finds in Mesopotamian archaeology and one of the things that really pushed the timetable of history and civilization back was something that was found in Ashurbanipal's library, which is in Asher, which is the northern part of Assyria. And it's the Mesopotamian king list. And this was a list that is inscribed in a stone tablet. They also found one inscribed in a stone column. They found this list in several places, and it's matched more or less. So they consider it to be at least somewhat factual, even though some of the reigns are way too long to be actual human reigns. So I'm going to go through, um, I'm just going to sort of read down the king list and tell you little stories about each king. So I love that. So we'll start. So this is like, basically, this is going to be the five minute version of Babylon. (laughs) And some of these cities, uh, you'll have to, if you just imagine a map, they're all kind of in what we would call the Fertile Crescent. And they start in the southern part near the Persian Gulf, and they sort of move north. So I'm not going to stop and position every city, but that's that's the arc of it. Is Uruk and Lagash are sort of in the south, and Asher is in the north. I don't think mm-hmm. we're even going to get up to Asher. but So we'll start with the king that everybody knows, the uh, man, the myth, the legend, everyone's favorite, Gilgamesh, who ruled the city of Uruk in about 2700 BC. And Gilgamesh is known to history mostly because a big part of his story is that flood myth that we talked about before. He mm-hmm. tries to go to the the end of the earth where the uh, man who survived the flood, Utnapishtim, lives. And apparent, he thinks Utnapishtim has the power of life and death. And he wants to revise his, revive his friend in Kaidu. And so he tells the story of the flood to establish who Utnapishtim is. And he goes there and he ultimately fails, but it's fine. Spoiler alert. But he gets there. He meets Utnapishtim, the ancient one. And Utnapishtim is Noah. And so this was the part of the tablet that uh, they discovered that got them sort of interested in archaeology. So that's Gilgamesh. He was the king of Uruk. And then there were, uh, I think, four kings, um, the kingship. So one of the things that the king list talks about is that kingship is bestowed by the gods and only exists in one city at a time. So uh, Mm. Gilgamesh had the kingship in Uruk, and then it went to Ur, and it went to Lagash three times. And then finally, it um, went back to Uruk in the person of Lugal Zugezi, who was a uh, king of Uruk. And his name, a lot of these kings' names are Lugal something, and a lot of those characters. And Lugal is, uh, it's two Sumerian characters, um, the one for big and the one for man. And so Lugal really just means big man. Yeah. Right. So he was less of a king, like, you know, he wasn't the king of England. He was just kind of the guy who could raise the army. That, that was who sure. he was, right? And that's what a, the, they, they call this the big man era. And it's a stage in any civilization, I think. So Lugal Zugezi is important because Lugal Zugezi was ultimately defeated by Sargon of Akkad, whose name has been taken by like a, you know, internet polemicist today, but is an actual historical <laughs> figure. And Sargon um, from 2340 to 2285 ruled the first empire in history that we know of. He said that he washed his weapons in the lower sea and in the upper sea, which means the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean. And he conquered right. all that area. And he managed to run an administrative state for 
a few decades, which is quite an accomplishment. And then uh, many of his, uh, and, he, and he managed to pass the empire on to his son, Rimush, uh, who passed it on to his son, Manish Tushu. And I'm saying these names just because I love saying them. And then Manish Tushu <laughs> passed the kingship on to his son, Naram Sin. And Naram Sin, you can see in my notes, I've written a little symbol next to Mar- Naram Sin. It's a nice. it's a star with um with some uh, like triangles attached to one side of the star, and that is the cuneiform sign uh, for the determinative dingir, which means that the pers- that the following word refers to a god. So oh, the reason wow. that I wrote that next to Naram Sin is because Naram Sin was the first ruler to be deified, right? And he um and which is if you just think about like this is a big leap, right? From big man from Lugal, who is just, you know, a guy who is good at fighting, to Naram Sin saying, like, I am a different species than the rest of you. Mm -hmm. I am a god. I am immortal. So that was Naram Sin. It was was an important important development in human history because we, up until the 20th century, had god emperors. Right. And this anticipates what we see in Rome with Augustus um, declaring himself appointed by God. And later in the, the the kingdoms of Europe, this is a very common trope. But to see it initiated here thousands of years ago, and then that transition, it's an important list. Yeah, Naram to Sin. understand. It's, yeah. it's an important. It's yeah. an important thing. And then, so we move on to Sharkali Shari, who I just like saying his name. And then the kingship moved to Lagash, and was bestowed upon Gudea, who. If you know what any Mesopotamian ruler looks like, it's probably Gudea. And the reason for that, and Krivoshek doesn't get into this, but the reason that Gudea, that Gudea's statues and images still survive today is that he insisted that all of his statues be made out of stone. Because mm. statues were typically made out of gold or bronze. And what would happen is... Down. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, the next mm-hmm. guy comes and melts down your statues. Sure. So he made all his statues out of uh, stone, and you can still see some in the British Museum. And so you can see... These are pretty good likenesses. Um, after Gudea was Urnamu, and after Urnamu was my favorite Mesopotamian king, Shulgi. And Shulgi was famous for revising the scribal school curriculum, which is pretty important and one of the reasons that we have a lot of stuff from his era and a lot of stuff, a lot of writing from after his era is that he really made the scribal schools important. But the thing that Shulgi did that was really incredible and strange is he he wanted to establish himself as a as a famous monarch he wanted to do something and he realized you know there's only so many other cities you can conquer there's only so many people you can kill my predecessors all did that you know my great great grandfather was a god i mean how am i going to distinguish myself and so what he did was he ran and and (laughs) ran literally he celebrated he celebrated the uh a religious festival in the city of Ur and the city of Nippur in one day. He ran from Ur By to running. Nippur, and then he ran from Nippur <laughs> back to Ur. And uh, it's it's about 120 miles, something like that. Wow. Um, and so they said that he did it in one day, and uh, and that was what he did. And modern sports historians and sports scientists have looked into this, and uh, and they think it's actually possible that he did it. Um, really? Yeah, there's like ultra marathon. There was an ultra marathoner in Australia who did something like 210 miles in 48 hours or something. And you know, and you should assume you can assume that these people were in better shape than us. You know, they had more physical lives than we do. Yeah. And so, is it likely that this feat was exaggerated? Yes, but it's possible that he did something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, or that, 
Ur and Nippur, our understanding of them is different than it was in his day, and maybe they were quite a bit closer together. But um, but yeah, and this is, leads to an interesting thing, which is the way that they name years. Entire PhDs are dedicated to figuring out Mesopotamian chronology because they didn't they didn't know that they were in two twenty ninety five BC. You know, so they um, named their years after deeds that the king had done. And so right. uh, year one of Shulgi's rule was Shulgi is the king. Year seven is the king made a round trip between Or and Nippur in one day. And that's how you refer to that year <laughs> um, in official documents, which is not incredibly helpful 3,000 years later. Yeah, chronologically must be hard to determine which came first. Yeah. Am I getting too excited talking about this? Because I really love no, this No, I love how excited you are about it because it's the energy, you know, that's mm. what it, it, I can really feel the passion and I'm intrigued as to how this has come together for you mm. and, and, and like how these themes resonate with you. It's just amazing. But please go ahead. Tell, tell me about, you know, why is Paul Krivacek such a compelling writer and researcher for this topic? Well, I, I mean, for a variety of reasons, not least of which is that he is uh, he's a Jew. So in theory, his ancestry goes back to this era. And so, yeah, so well, so he lived in he lived and wrote in the UK, but he is not from the UK. He no, he's is, not. Um, he was born in Vienna in 1937, and he—he's a refugee. He had to they escape the Nazis. To, yep, yeah. he escaped the Nazis, yeah. and apparently there is a um, there's a in the Holocaust Museum there is audio, I think, or an interview with his mother explaining how they had to, she somehow had to liberate their father, Krivichek's father, from Dachau before they went to England, and it was, yeah, so, so obviously very traumatic, and and you know spare a thought for they fled Vienna and they went to London, which was like not the safest place to be during World War II. You know, they had no, it's definitely safer than being in London, but um, so, or sorry, definitely safer than being in Austria if you're a Jewish family, but still not by any means safe. So, no. so he grew up in the UK and he became a TV producer and produced these series, several series for the, for the BBC, which right after the war in the 50s and 60s, anything that you could do as a series on a reasonable budget, BBC would do that. That was pretty much <laughs> their thing. It was they, yeah. they were the Netflix of their time. They just wanted exactly. stuff to put on the air, and yep. so he did a series about the computer in 1980, which is really interesting to me as someone who writes about technology. He did a series on musical instruments, and he did a series on the life of Mozart, um, and uh, among many others. But I was amazed to learn this about him because I'm also sort of a musician and historian. Um, and I didn't know that he was. I just loved this book, and I didn't know anything about him until I had read it twice. So I just wow. assumed he was a historian, which he obviously was. And he uh, also invented an instrument called the uh, Krivichek string organ, which is like a lap steel guitar, but it has these um, this piezoelectric uh, current in the strings. So anywhere you touch the strings, they make sound. So yeah, I think it was like an eight-string instrument tuned in whole steps, and there's a video of him playing it on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere. And it's a, uh, I think they only made two prototypes, <laughs> but <laughs> but they made it. Um, and some, one of them exists somewhere, and I'm gonna have to buy it eventually. Um, <laughs> or re uh, reinvent it, remake it, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, he patented it, so somewhere there's there's uh, plans yeah, for it, instructions. Um, yeah, but uh, 
but yeah, so so he was just a really interesting guy, and he didn't settle into writing histories until the last decade of his life. So he was a mm-hmm. TV presenter, TV producer, and a musician until his 60s, and then he sat down to write histories, and he wrote one about uh, Yiddish history, where he where he establishes that most European Jews actually defend, descended from Slavic converts and not from mm. uh, the, the diaspora, and uh, another mm-hmm. one about Zoroastrianism. But his most popular one was Babylon, and, his, wow. and the latest one was, was this, this one. Um, and have you read all of his books? No, I've just read this one. Yeah. Um, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't, frankly, know about his other books until I did a deep dive on him for this podcast. I, I knew yeah. he had written other books, but I didn't know all these details about him until I thought... No, I, I thought I should know something about him when I came on here. Um, so it must have felt uncanny when you realized how much you had in common after you've read his book twice. And then you realize, oh, this is somebody who actually had a similar path to me in some ways. Yeah, I, I, I'm doing a lot of research for my own book right now. And I'm researching a lot of personalities. And the thing that I've realized is that I feel like I have something in common with everybody. And I think mm-hmm. that's because most people are pretty much the same. So th- this is what I'm, is that like the exception is that I'll read a biography of someone and not see something of myself. And I think that's why people love biographies because you always can find mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And, you know, that's partly because the people who are the subject of the biographies are like you and partly because the people who are the authors of the biographies are like you and that's part of the reason that Mesopotamian history is so interesting is that you read these stories of these people and you can imagine like with a few tweaks, we're basically living in the same world that they lived in, you know, totally, and, totally. and they're having the same issues. At least that's what I thought until I read the book that totally changed my outlook on this book, um, oh. which I'm going to talk about now. And wow, that is Julian James's classic the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Now, where did I pull this fancy title from? So like I mentioned, (laughs) I have a podcast where we talk about books and I reached out to a philosopher named Megan O'Giblin, who I really admire, who wrote a great book Mm -hmm. called God, Human, Animal, Machine. We're going to be discussing it on my podcast. Uh, I don't know when it'll come out, but I'm I'm having the conversation with her on uh, a week from today, basically. And Mm -hmm. So I asked her to recommend a book, and she recommended The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Now, what the hell does that slew of words even mean? Yeah, please, please define. So in 1976, Julian Jaynes, who was a philosopher from, uh, in the uh, philosophy department at Yale, mm-hmm. came up with a fourfold theory that he outlined in this book. And I'm just going to talk about one of the theories, which is the theory of the bicameral mind. So your brain... Is divided into two halves, as everybody knows. And there is a little thing in the middle called the corpus callosum that keeps them separate. And language and everything in your brain is bicameral, which means that if if the language center on the left, sorry, the language center is the one example that is not bicameral, which is what I'm getting to. If the vision center on the left doesn't work, the one on the right will. If the oral centered on the left doesn't work, the one on the right will. And they're and they're um, redundant, basically. Um, the only thing that is not redundant is the language center. Your right, the right side of your brain does not produce or understand spoken language. The left side of your brain does. So, or does not understand spoken language, but the left side of your brain does. And James's theory is that, you know, consciousness is a mystery and where consciousness came from is a mystery. And his theory is that consciousness is 
the results of, uh, sorry, let me back up that the way that human beings used to think is that the right side of their brain used to actually talk to the left side of their brain. So um, you would hear auditory hallucinations that were generated by the right side of your brain, and you would hear them in the left side of your brain and be able to articulate, and that those were what we called gods. And so everyone mm. had a personal god, and everyone had a, um, a, a personality, but they had no concept of I. They thought that they were just listening to their god. And this explains a lot of modern phenomena about how sometimes you know how to react to something before you consciously know what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because it's your... You know, they, they say it's your God, or he would say that it's your God mind. You know, it's, and th this also plays in, this also is echoed by Daniel Kahneman, the um, Nobel Prize winning economist and psychologist, his idea of system one and system two brains, which one is really fast and the other one is analytical. And mm -hmm. so Jane's theory is that all of these people that we just talked about, Shulgi and Sharkali Shari and Lugal Zugazi, had what he calls a bicameral mind, which meant that they were only listening to the right side of their brain, talking to the left side of their brain, and they believed that all of their actions were directed by gods, and they had no way of initiating action themselves. And so essentially, mm. they were unconscious until about the time of the Greeks, which is when writing became the primary mode of expressing and, uh, and moving information among generations. And his evidence for this is I know it's like like you're not ready for this idea, and that's how I felt when I read. It. I was like, I'm. This is, I think that's how everybody feels when they read this. Is that the evidence for this? There is a lot of evidence for this, but in the you know, there is no first person in the Odyssey or the Iliad. The, all of the right. action in these ancient texts are directed by gods, and the the same holds true of the Mesopotamian texts. The you know, Gilgamesh yeah. is the main character, but Inanna is the one who initiates the action and Marduk is the one who initiates the action and Utnapishtim is the one who initiates the action and they're just following these things around and the um, the way that James thinks that this came about is that by uh, rulers, big men, Lugals would tell someone to do something and they would continue hearing that hallucinated voice in their head and that's what would make them go up to a river and spend all day setting up a fish trap rather than just wandering off and picking some berries to eat for their family which is what they probably should do. So this is Julian James's theory. So um, in a nutshell, I don't know if I explained it very well, but uh, it's it's something. And so rereading this book with that in mind really changed my perspective on, on who all these people were. I don't know if I believe this theory, but uh, it is a theory and mm. it is a compelling one. And I'm, I'm glad I shared it with you guys. But please don't write angry letters talking about how Lucas Cantor got on this podcast and said that human beings weren't conscious until the Greeks. I'm just re counting a theory from a book. I don't <laughs> necessarily believe this or I'm a proponent of this, but it is an interesting thought. Yeah. So if I'm understanding correctly, you reframed how you thought about this whole book by Paul Krivichek by thinking through the conscious experience of these rulers and how they made sense of the world around them and the fact that they, would, they didn't see themselves as individuals in the way that we see ourselves as individuals they were experiencing decision-making in a very different way, consciousness even in a different way. They were experiencing it in uh, almost, if I'm understanding correctly, as though it was filtered through this God mind. Is that right? That they were hearing a hallucinated voice that was generated yeah. by their uh, right, the right language center of their brain. Mm -hmm. And they were hearing mm -hmm. it as a real voice. And there's also even reference in Babylon to uh, an apsu, which is a little like totem 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and James's theory is that that little totem was a a manifestation of your personal God voice. So you would hear your hallucinated ruler's God voice mm-hmm. in your own head, and then you would have you would hear your own personal God voice, which is the beginnings of consciousness of having an idea of subjectivity. But the the reason that I bring that up is a because I think it's fascinating and fucking crazy. Um, so that's one of the reasons I bring it up. But the other reason is that this history, the history of Mesopotamia, because it is so rich in some areas and so paltry in scholarship and understanding, especially at the amateur level and others, is very, very fertile ground for cranks. And mm-hmm. every, you know, if you listen to, you know, Coast to Coast AM, which is a show we have in the U.S., which is just an AM radio show about conspiracies, conspiracies. Uh, If you listen to something like that, they often will talk about Mesopotamian things and how this one thing that we don't understand in Mesopotamia must be this. There's a famous author, I don't know if I should name drop him or not, but I will, uh, Zachariah Sitchin, who Hmm. believes that the history of Mesopotamia is the history of aliens coming to Earth and creating humans in order to mine gold for them. And and this is like, if you, with with a really cursory and crude reading of a very small selection of the facts, you could prove basically anything because this stuff happened so long ago. And it also doesn't help that because we weren't taught about it in school, it seems like something that is being suppressed. You know, so it's very easy Mm -hmm. to say like, well, you know, the, the elites don't want you to know about all this stuff that was happening in ancient Egypt and in ancient Mesopotamia, but here's what was going on. And we don't know what this word means. And so it must mean that it's a spaceship from God. Um, (laughs) And there's, uh, you know, so there's all these, uh, it's very fertile ground for this kind of stuff. And that's another reason that I just find it so fascinating is that the more you learn about it, the more those conspiracy theories don't make any sense. And I think that that is true of, of all of that stuff is that the more you learn about the source material of it, the more you realize that, it really does seem like just people being people and it just seems like normal stuff. And this is my biggest problem with Julian James is that I think that his theory is brilliant, but I just, it seems like it couldn't possibly be true. Well, the way that I make sense of the conspiracy theorist is most of them or many of them have this religious background, um, maybe not necessarily taught in a clear sighted way, but it's certainly in the ether of the consciousness. You know, there's many evangelical uh, communities And so this particular region, this particular era in history, there is a ring of truth to it, or there's a ring of familiarity, I should say. It's not necessarily truth. It's, oh, I've heard this word, or I've heard this concept in some way, similar to the idea of how George Smith and his friends identified the um, the Noah the Noah's Ark myth in this in this form so there's enough familiarity that it feels true because we're always looking for that we're looking for something that feels familiar because that's how we've adapted evolved and survived and so as I was listening to this book I thought why have I not uh, been as interested in this era you know I knew about it but I was always drawn to ancient Egypt I think ancient Egypt always felt a lot more impressive and interesting to me but when I do connect the dots to religion I think maybe I avoided this because it reminded me of religion and the Bible and reading Bible stories and it was so boring and I just thought oh no I I don't I've been there I've done that got the t-shirt I don't need to hear any more about the biblical lands 
let's go for the good stuff, the pyramids, the pharaohs. <laughs> and so listening to this audiobook for that perspective, it made me rethink some of my assumptions about that this was boring or this was just biblical stuff that conspiracy theorists like to rehash and reframe into slightly compelling, mysterious sounding messages, narratives. Uh, I, that's that's my thinking on it. Again, it's a little bit rough and sketchy. I don't think I've I've solved you know the like, how do we how do we get rid of conspiracy theorists? I think the problem is when you're only given a religious education, you don't have the tools to be critical of ideas. Um, there's a real intuitive sense of truth and acceptance and faith without the framework to take it apart and identify common ground. And that is something that puts those people in a vulnerable state to believe that anything that sounds remotely ancient and mysterious in it, it has just a bit of truth to it because it has these terminologies from this era, this, this region of the world. Oh, that sounds like it must be true. That's what explains it to me. Yeah. So what you're saying actually supports Julian James's theory quite a bit, actually, which is mm. that the idea that you believe something like evangelical Christianity for your whole youth and that when you grow up and realize that that is certainly not, at the very least, certainly not literally true, or at least maybe not true in the way that you were taught it, you instinctively want something else to fill that void because your brain has been conditioned to want to believe something as ultimate truth. And right. what Jane suggests is that Asher, which is the last kingdom that we deal with in Babylon, and they were notoriously brutal. And the reason for this is that he sees in their writing that they were maybe the first non-bicameral kingdom. And so mm. they had subjective consciousness. And so they were going out to the other cities and killing what they believed to be, or what they recognized as drones, who were just listening mm to this weird God voice in their head. And so they had maybe a generation ago been the same way. And then they wow. realized like, oh no. It's, and, and so they, they didn't think, oh, we were listening to the right half of our brain. Now we're listening to, now we have our own subjective consciousness. They thought these people are listening to the wrong God and our God is so much more powerful. And that is why you see the transition to monotheism is that it's a lot easier, like instead of Instead of uh, believing the voice of the, your ruler in your head and the voice of your personal God, you instead of hallucinating it directly, you just assume that there is one God that is giving everybody directions. Right, and right. So, and that in James's reading gave the made the Assyrians, uh, or yeah, the Assyrians just really angry at everyone else, and that's why they were so brutal because they didn't see these people as human. And that's a uh, and and if James is right, they were in some sense not quite human yet the way that we would define mm. it, which is my problem with James's theory. <laughs> it, exactly. Well, um, yeah, it would have made, but it, it also establishes a pattern that we're painfully familiar with, which is the othering mm -hmm. of groups, right? Up until our day, this is a common trope in the news and the media, you know, famously in American politics right now, but hey, even in British and Canadian politics and listeners of this podcast will be familiar with that. It's interesting to frame it in a, in a sense of like, this is how people think and they think incorrectly because they're hearing the wrong God and then linking that back to the monotheistic trend. And I remember 
one of the things my classical studies professor said that always stayed with me was people didn't fight wars of religion until monotheism. Because until then, you just added the gods from your conquered lands. It's not that they didn't fight wars. Yeah, There's always reasons to fight wars. But if you were conquering another civilization, you'd say, oh, good, there's some more gods for us to add to our household. Let's just add them, bring them in. We can use more. There wasn't a sense that there has to be a single truth. And I think that's very interesting because when you look at monotheistic cultures, that is always a point of contention with with any sort of cultural or, or ge geographical clash, geopolitical clash, there's this um, intense, uh, and, and actually one of the books that you mentioned on your, your, your reads from 2021. Patrick Radden Keefe. Yes. Yeah. So I read, I listened to that audiobook, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, and it's all about the troubles in Northern Ireland. And that audiobook is a chilling example of how religious belief becomes infused into the culture and it allows and enables combatants to see each other as non human or less than human. But going back to James's idea, do you feel like there's enough of a logic or framework to what he says that you could apply it still and make sense of it, even if there's loose ends and it doesn't hold completely? Well, I'll give away the thesis of my own book and probably the uh, bombshell uh -oh. moment of my uh, Sneak peek. upcoming podcast. Everybody, you which heard is, it here first. Yeah. <laughs> which is simply that I, I think that the I. Scholars have tried for a long time to find holes in James's theory, and they're um, not easy to find. And there's certainly one of the things that he says at the end of his book is that, you know, people are looking for the string that if they pull it on unravel the whole argument, and I promise it doesn't mm -hmm. exist. And I think he's right. Yeah. But the big argument with James's philosophy of the bicameral mind and the fact that humans weren't conscious until the invention of writing is simply that you can't infer someone's state of mind simply by looking at the products of their of their civilization and by looking at their art you know you can't mm -hmm. take some thing that someone spent even years of their life on and infer what their brain was like from that thing mm -hmm. you know we, but writing we, is the differentiator no, i mean maybe it is maybe it isn't but you can't look at someone's mm -hmm. writing and understand their mind either you can understand a piece mm -hmm. of it and you can understand a little bit about it but there's there's no this is just a tacit assumption that we have in our society that you can understand something about that you can understand everything about someone by looking at some of by piecing together the breadcrumbs that they've left throughout their life. And there's just sure. no evidence that this is true. But we just assume that it is. And so I think about this a lot because I am the composer who finished Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with artificial intelligence, a task that is not necessarily even possible to do regardless of how good technology is. I mean, we, we, I did it in a way. If someone else mm -hmm. did it, they would do it in a different way. There is no definitive finishing of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. because it's subjective. Yeah, because there is no way to recreate Schubert because he's dead. And even if we had more, and we have a lot of data, he's the most prolific composer in history. And mm -hmm. if we take all of his music and try to create music that sounds like Schubert, I we can kind of do that. But that doesn't mean we've recreated Schubert. And I think what James is assuming is that, well, we've got the Odyssey, we've got the Iliad, we've got Gilgamesh. We can infer from these three texts, and, and let's give James some credit. Let's assume he's read thousands of texts. We can infer from Fair these enough. thousands of texts what these people's minds were like. I just don't think that's possible. 
you know, I, th- there's just this scholarly bias, which I don't succumb to because I'm not a professional scholar, which really wants that to be true because it is kind of the basis for a lot of classical scholarship, you know? So you, you want that, like you make this assumption that, well, we can look at something that someone wrote and infer their state of mind. And to some degree, you probably can on a very, very broad level, but not on the level of understanding how their brain chemistry actually worked. Sure. But I think also history is fascinating because we can often prove that certain events Mm -hmm. or occurrences took place, but the understanding of how people felt their sense-making ability during that time, their motivations, that's all up for debate. And it is so subject to our own ideology of which we will never be aware of completely because we're immersed in it right now. You know, and so that's why it's so interesting sometimes to read historic um, accounts of archaeology or 19th century documents about finds, because the way that they perceive that that find, that site, is always through the lens of the 19th century, you know, discovery. Yeah, it always says more about, it always says more about, I mean, history famously says more about the time that it was written and the time that it took yes. place. And that's true for... Babylonian history, I mean, the Epic of Gilgamesh was written a millennia after it supposedly happened. And it probably says more about the scribes who wrote it down than it does about who Gilgamesh actually was. If Gilgamesh actually existed, we sort of assume he did, but he might not have. I think about one of the descriptions in Babylon, and I've read a good amount of this, is uh, Edward Woolley was one of the most famous archaeologists of the 19th century. And he describes the scene that he found in Mesopotamia somewhere, and he finds what he describes as a death pit. And what he writes about is that there were several servants, and then there was a king, and the servants all came, and they drank from a vat of poisoned beer or whatever, and they all died. And there was one servant that he could tell who was late because she had her Everyone else had this ribbon in their hair, but she didn't quite have it in her hair. And what Krivacek reminds us of is that what Woolley found was a pile of bones. Exactly. You know, like he made he made this story up, and it sounds plausible. And you know, it's it's probably it probably was a little bit more organized than a pile of bones. But essentially, he found a room with a bunch of dead people in it, and yeah, um, you know, they could have died for a num in a number of ways. And they also could have died for a number of reasons, and they didn't all necessarily die there at the same time. I mean, all of this is – these are all things that you infer by looking at an archaeological site, and they're, um, you know, they're just so stories. And that's yeah. fine, but that story probably says more about Edward Woolley than it does about the people who died in that pit or who were placed in that pit after they died. Who, who knows? And there is this temptation when reading ancient history to – infer more than is really possible to infer from from the text i mean it it really really what we have is a list of things that like probably did happen in a certain order and and there's and and i think it's fascinating i think the facts of it are fascinating i think the interpretations of it are fat i mean i even think zachariah sitchin is fascinating even though he's i mean he's not right about anything but but it's interesting writing. Well, you know? it's interesting. Yeah. And and really, at the end of the day, that's the only important thing. Are stories interesting or boring? Because that's what we want to listen to. And these civilizations, they're dead. They're gone. They don't care what we think. It's really our 
motivation and the value that we place that ends up being front and center. Like, why does it matter for us to know about these civilizations or these these histories? Well, because we make sense of them and they help us identify things within ourselves. And, and you know, we, we love finding patterns. We're sense-making machines in a way. And I think this is why ancient civilizations are so fun to read about. And I use that word deliberately, fun, because to me, it is a bit of an escape. And ultimately, it's about whether the author tells a good story or not, right? So even though it's ostensibly nonfiction, and I saw some uh, criticism on Goodreads that said, oh, this is just popular history. And I wanted to say, sign me up. I'm all here for popular history. I, I don't need academic treaties and you know, research papers, although I'm sure those are interesting in their own way. But it's about telling a compelling story that helps me understand my own context, my own place in human civilization. Is that based on objective reality? Not 100%. There's definitely some leaps of faith that we have to make when we're reading about these eras. And I think that's maybe the most interesting borderland to investigate is at what point do we back off and say, okay, this is pure speculation and going down that path is conspiracy theory territory? Or do we say, you know what, we can identify enough here to say this makes sense. This establishes human behavior over centuries, because that's that's often like you are saying, the reason we love reading biographies is to relate and say, hey, I'm just like this famous person who 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 seems weird and wonderful, but hey, we both like this bizarre flavor, or we both like getting up at 5.30 and walking the dog, whatever it may be. So how do we find that balance and feel confident in our beliefs when we are reading about things that we know have been infused with myth and interpretation and politics and and, and all that, that goes on top of, of history and archaeology? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you said that um, it's a leap of faith to understand some ancient history, but it's not. I mean, th- there's no faith required. You don't have to believe it is literally true, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be literally true to be useful. And things change all the time. I mean, I think about just in the to, to go back to interpreting archaeology and interpreting data. I think if you were to have an archaeologist, let's let's call a let's say that someone's getting a PhD in the year 2500 in 20th and 21st century media, sure. right? This is their this is their PhD focus. So, you know, they've read some history books about this period. They've certainly know some details, but they're really focused on the media. They might conclude that from 1940 to about 1965, Americans reproduced asexually <laughs> because there's no sex in the media between those times. There's no allusion to it. There's no reference to Mm. it. There's no swear words on TV. So that must mean that they like, maybe because, you know, cloning was coming around around that. So maybe what, maybe they did a lot of cloning and they didn't touch each other because there's no references to that kind of thing in the media. So it must not have existed. That is the level of, that is the level of inference that we're making by saying, well, you know, they didn't reference the color blue. Yeah in the odyssey so therefore they they, that color must yeah, not yeah. have existed no, that's a perfect yeah. example i love that you know it's, it's it was very recent when i say a leap of faith i'm thinking to make sense you do have to accept even even with it's it's not that you are saying i'm going to believe this for all time and that's the way it is but you're saying okay i'm going to buy this story about the person on their way to a sacrifice who 
you know, they got there late and they didn't have time to put the ribbon in their hair because it's a good story. And it's not really important whether it is true in every single sense of the word, but it tells us something about the archaeologist, but it also resonates in the sense that, well, this is behavior we've seen in other places, right? Jim Jones and whatnot. Well, this is a, this is a, um, I think this is like partly uh, a product of religious upbringing is that you can hold something in your mind as true without believing it to be literally true. Yeah. You know, I mean, in, in a court case before they, before they adjudicate a court case, the first thing they do, maybe not the first thing they do, and I'm not a lawyer, but from what I understand is that they, they have a hearing and they say, all right, let's assume everything that is alleged by the plaintiff is true. Is this a crime? Mm-hmm. You know, so if everything you say it is true, is this even worth pursuing? And when they dismiss a case, that's because the answer to that question is no. Right. Right. And so, like, and I, I think of history like that, where you can assume something's true and then think about the conclusions that would follow from the fact that something is true without believing it to be the literal word of God. Yeah. You know, or believing it to be literally true. It's just like, like with Edward Woolley, I mean, you know, and I say this all the time, this is an argument I make to uh, Christians that nobody really gets, but I'll try <laughs> okay. it anyway. Uh, but it's just that like, you know, like what I, what I, I, I've tried to say this to many of my friends is like, whether or not Jesus really existed, you'll never know. And it doesn't matter. I agree. And, and yeah, and, and they'll say, no, I know he existed. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, no, you don't, because it was 2000 years ago. So like, it can be written down in any book anywhere. But like, you, you have no way of knowing if he actually existed unless, you know, and it's the same thing with all this history. We could find out that at some, we could, we could, it is con- eh, it's not really conceivable, but let's say it's possible that, you know, all these cuneiform tablets that we found in the 19th century were just a large scale prank. Sure. You know, that someone did 2000 years ago, you know, but I, I don't know. It's possible. It's not, it's. It's, it's very unlikely, and I think there's probably archaeologists who would tell me that because of the way that the soil was that it's not actually possible. But, you know, even if that were true, th- there's still some really interesting stuff in all of these documents. Right. But what I sense in you is that you're saying all this, but you love reading history. You're not going to stop reading it on the chance that this is all an elaborate prank. So why? I don't care. Don't it doesn't care. matter. You don't I, care. Yeah. Yeah. So why? What are you getting out of it when you're list, reading? What are you getting out of it when you're reading about history that really speaks to you? Because some people, obviously not you, would say, "Well, this is what happened, and like this is the truth, and it and and this informs my sense of self." But you're getting something else, and what is that? What is it that's speaking to you that's that's resonating so deeply? Yeah, I guess it is the the truth. I I mean, I, or I huh. Yeah, I guess I don't. Yeah, I don't believe that it's the literal, or I don't believe that necessarily is the literal truth. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think about whether it's the literal truth. I guess, like that's not my, that's not my job. I'm not a historian, sure. so like I think it is the job of people like Paul Krivichek and the people whose work he depended on for this book to make sure that they're getting these details right. And the, those people are called archaeologists and you know PhDs, and this is their job is to get a really specific thing right. Mm -hmm. And they have methods of doing it that, from what I understand, are very comprehensive. And I've I've talked to some, uh, one of, there's a great archaeologist couple on YouTube named uh, Digital Hammurabi is what they go by. And it's a a husband and wife. And what she says at the end of every podcast is, uh, always ask, how do you know that? Mm -hmm. 
And that so this is and this is a, a, the scholarly attitude, or at least it's the modern scholarly sure. attitude, is rather than taking an argument from authority that because Wallace Budge, the head of the British Museum in the nineteenth late nineteenth century, says so, it must be true. You you can ask, you know, how do you know this? How do you know this? How do you know this? So yeah, the I think that the interesting thing for me when I read history is to see the patterns and the broad strokes of how humans have solved problems over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think that that information is as interesting if it is creatively made up as if it is factually accurate. Um, I'd agree. Because, uh, you know, listening to, I mean, Sherlock Holmes was never a real character, but how he solved problems is very interesting and intriguing. And uh, the fact that he is compelling and compelling. Yeah. And the fact that he isn't real means that you probably aren't going to be able to employ all of the techniques that he used in your actual life because he is a fictional mm-hmm. character who didn't have to worry about, you know, bathing or paying his own rent. Uh, but also there are some principles like, you know, maybe try to be more observant that are actually quite sure. useful to learn from Sherlock Holmes, even though he isn't real. You know, the idea that you should treat people how you want to be treated is a great idea, even though Jesus isn't real. You could still believe that, sure. you know, and, uh, yeah. and the idea that he's the, that God was, is omnipotent, but had to torture his own son in order to forgive humanity for their sins. It's just weird and insane. I don't get it, but you know, people do when they get something from it and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but that theme shows up in other mythology. So it makes me wonder what's going on here. Why, why are these stories repeating this pattern? And I don't have the answer, but I think that's what keeps me reading history and reading mythologies, trying to establish patterns and make sense of them and figure out, do we still have this pattern? Do we still have this sense-making of torturing children? Because I, I really hope not. But clearly, these stories were passed down and copied and written by many people because they believed that there was significance there. So I guess that's what motivates me. And and so when, I, when I'm looking at motivation, I always find that fascinating is why do people enjoy what they enjoy? Sometimes it's obvious, right? It's like a dopamine hit. And that might be part of it for anything that we enjoy. But to me, it sounds like you are enjoying the storytelling and the the sense making as far as patterns emerge. And it's not as important to you whether it's concretely proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I assume that what... How, how do I put it? Yeah, I guess... I mean, that doesn't really matter. The, the stories mm-hmm. of ancient Mesopotamia are interesting to me, whether or not they are true, um, which I mean, there's good evidence that they are. How do I put it? There, there's good evidence that all of these people existed and all of these places existed. Yeah. So whether or not the actual and, you know, we have some we have some the, the I didn't get to the Amarna letters, but we have we have letters that kings wrote to each other from from the late Babylonian period. We have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of evidence that is archaeological and that is pretty unassailably true. It doesn't, uh, you know, nothing paints the whole story. But it, but there's, yeah. other, there's other evidence that is interesting in the sense that it echoes what we do today or it anticipates, I should say, since it came first. So some of the medical documentation about how they treated certain diseases or wounds in some cases, the approach would be similar, like draining pus or mm. so, something like that. And so it's not so much evidence as 
Yeah, that's what you do to a human body when you've got to clear a wound. Mm -hmm. And not much has changed in all that time. So there's that thread that I always find fascinating in the sense that we really have a lot in common biologically with our ancestors. Maybe that sounds so obvious when I say it out loud, but to read it in the context of thousands of years ago, it feels strangely reassuring for me just to know that we're still dealing with some of these same mortal challenges of, of having a body and, and what it's like to to be mortal. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that, that's that's one of the things that I think is interesting about history. And it's, it's an interesting balance between having those personal things uh, at like, you know, just medical texts that deal with the body and then also just reading like, and then 30,000 people got killed in this battle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as they it do. It sounds, yeah, it sounds really remote when you're th thinking about ancient warfare, but in every war, yeah. there were individual human beings having incredibly intense experiences, you yeah. know, that are just boiled yeah. down to a sentence like, you know, and then, and then in year six, the king, you know, took this city. Yeah, and that and, was it. Yeah, they and, were gone. They were dead. And so it's, and, yeah, it, it is an interesting um, yeah. balance. And it's, you know, it's also... It's overwhelming, and one of the other theses of my book is just like the overwhelming complexity of everything, mm -hmm. and that everything is more complicated than you think. And one of the things that I've noticed when talking to people about AI is one of the common things that I hear is that, well, I could see how artificial intelligence could do X, but there's no way that it could do Y. And in these six sentences, right. X is always something I don't really understand, and Y is the thing that I'm an expert in. So right. like a doctor will say, I see how artificial intelligence could write music, but there's no way that it could diagnose a disease. Yeah. And, or do remote surgery yeah. with 5G. And I might say yeah. the opposite, where like I see how our artificial intelligence could like look at some data and decide what disease someone had, but I don't think they're going to be able to write a symphony. And yeah. it's, it's just a bias because I know how complicated it is to write a symphony, and I don't know how complicated it is to diagnose a disease. Whereas a doctor is exactly in the opposite situation. And you know my evidence for... And this is I, this thinking, I think, is prevalent throughout humanity that people understand that some things are complicated, but they assume that other things are less complicated. And they usually like the Dunning Kruger effect. No, it's not. It's the, the Dunning Kruger effect is that that you see you see less complexity because you have a, a like a slight understanding of something. Maybe it is the Dunning Kruger right. effect. Yeah, you might be right that like if you're. You know, yeah, I, th I think I, I, I take back my refutation. I think you're exactly right. And that is exactly what I'm talking about. Sure. Well, I have a couple of things I still want to ask you. Do you have a few more minutes? We could do this all day. There was a point of contention I had with Paul Krucek, and that is he kind of dismissed the, the I don't know, I'm going to restart here. Wait, can, One was, of the was, points... your, was your point of contention that he like clearly fucking loves Saddam Hussein? Ah, <laughs> um. uh, that was a bit mysterious and quaint in a very disturbing way. But I just figured he wasn't around long enough to see what came next. Maybe. <laughs> oh no, he was. He saw. He oh, saw Saddam died yeah. in two thousand eight. He saw. He oh, saw the whole life cycle. Saddam apparently. Oh my gosh, uh, that's right. Yeah, said on his. Uh, uh, well, I mean, it's oh, in this yeah. book that when he's executed, Saddam says, "This is a gallows of shame," and. And I, I'm, I'm being, I'm joking. Like he doesn't love Saddam Hussein. He was painting Saddam Hussein in the context of the history that Saddam was coming from and that yeah. we Westerners didn't necessarily understand. So, yeah. 
Well, I think the comparison was it Nebuchadnezzar that they tried to compare. And so a fun fact, I was in a school play about Daniel in the lion's den, and we had to sing songs about King Nebuchadnezzar and like dress up in that era clothing. But that's the story for another day. As a musician, I'm trying to think, what do you rhyme with Nebuchadnezzar? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think one of the lines, what it didn't rhyme, but it was like, it's cool in the furnace. It was just, it must've been something like that. It was just, just completely yeah. bizarre. Um, oh, were you, was I there like think, was there a chorus of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Oh yeah, yeah, yes. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego lived in Judah a long time ago. <laughs> All right, this is the best podcast I've ever done. <laughs> We've arrived. I'll see if I can pull up a photo. I have one of all of us dressed up. Anyways. Please be sure to make that the um, thumbnail for this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, the, the the prop grapes and golden goblet were especially exciting to me at that age. It was like, yes. Uh, so good. Um, I think, though, what I was a little disappointed by was the chapter about the role of women. And not just because I'm a woman, but because... Kavicek said, you know, none of the societies of the era were particularly egalitarian, almost as a way of saying, well, it's no surprise that they treated women as chattel and almost another species. But here's the thing. In ancient Egypt, women had very similar rights to men other than the professions, but they could inherit land. There was even women rulers, pharaohs. And I thought, if I were a historian, wouldn't I mean, I'd be curious to know why that is. Like, why is it that Egypt stands out? Or conversely, why does that um, Mesopotamia and Babylon stand out for its treatment of women or the role of women there? I felt like that was a bit of a blind spot. And I don't know if that was just a lack of curiosity. Maybe he just ran out of time. But I thought, I would want to look into that. I would want to understand why this other civilization, which is and I agree with the term conservative, right? The ancient Egyptians weren't interested in progress or, 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 you know, tomorrow could be better and more advanced. But why did they have this more egalitarian approach with women, which stands out as maybe anachronistic for the time? I don't know. But that was one thing I would have loved to understand more. Well, there, that's interesting. I, I didn't, I actually read that, and maybe this is because I'm a man and this is my own bias. I actually read that as him saying like, he wasn't really talking about the role of women beforehand. He was just saying that Asher particularly were yeah. brutal to women. Brutal. Like that, yeah. and that, like this was like, even, even in the context of women being treated as second class citizens generally in Mesopotamia, this was really, really bad. Even in the context of ancient Mesopotamia, they were particularly brutal. And I think, I don't know that he was making a comment on the treatment of women elsewhere in Mesopotamia with that statement. And I don't think that he... But that, I mean, I'm not going to defend him. I mean, if you as a mm-hmm. woman and as a person who reads a lot and is very smart thought that that was odd, I, I'm going to agree with you. I, I just thought if if I were a scholar, I would know about what had happened in Egypt to a point because it was around the same time and the, the kingdoms had some interaction. And I would want to know, well, why why was it so bad here compared to others? But Again, you know, it was he offers so... he offers a theory as to why it was so bad. Yeah, I mean, the the theory yeah. that he offers is that we um, they were moving into a monotheistic religion, and that yeah. monotheistic religions inherently separate human beings from the rest of creation, and that yes. uh, 
that we have, and that that's not the case in polytheistic religions that are generally more, you know, you have a god of the earth. And, and he says that, you know, Enlil was what we would call god mm. biosphere, and that Ea was his daughter who was the, the earth and, you know, so on. And that when we get to uh, Ahura Mazda, Ahura Mazda is, the, is uh, pretty close to Jehovah, right? And, um, or to Yahweh. And it, it's, a, it's yeah. a single god that rules the biosphere and gives human beings dominion over the earth. And that that is all well and good if you're a man, but if you're a woman, you can't really escape your connection to biology. Because right. of the You're right. because he of does childbirth, bring that up. yeah, because of childbirth and because of um, you know uh, your monthly cycle that is you know evidence uh, yeah, that evidence you are connected that you're, to the moon yeah, and the earth exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think he, that he does give a reason for why they treated women worse. Yeah, that is that's an excellent point. Um, he does explain that, and I I just wondered if there was more of a distinct like he didn't really call out the role of women before that era. But that that's a great connection with the monotheistic mindset that it it does create hierarchies and and it really does separate humans from other creation and that continues on into other monotheistic religions so it does make sense and, and I think that fits with what I understand about monotheism in general mm -hmm. so yeah I think that's pretty evident in monotheistic cultures and the yeah. other thing is he does uh, he does make a you know he probably doesn't make enough of a big deal but he, he gives a good amount of column space to Enhedwana, who was the first um, writer, you know, and she was a yeah. woman. She was, I think, the granddaughter of Naram Sin. And yeah, she was the first like named writer on a tablet. No, she was the first. She was anyway, she was a woman. She wrote a lot. She was very famous. And she, yeah, she was the first writer, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly the Amazing. first writer of poetry. And those were probably songs, too. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, I, I think in general, I think the role of women in ancient cultures and I mean, this this stuff is chronically explored too little. So yeah. I totally agree with you. And I don't know much about the the role of women in in Egypt, but that would be an interesting an interesting study. And it probably exists. I just would like to say for any of the Christian listeners, like this is just my opinion. Like you believe what you believe. God bless you. I'm not. Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I know yeah. that I can be kind of harsh, and I when I you know said something about Jesus doesn't exist and all this stuff. And like, I understand that that might rub some people the wrong way. And I, that's not my intention. I'm just, you know, anyway, like you would think nothing of telling me how, like what you believe and think that that was totally appropriate. And I'm doing the same thing with respect. Well, on that note, I think we've used our time well to entertain and inform and maybe confuse a few people, but I certainly enjoyed the process. So thanks again for coming on the podcast, Lucas. My pleasure. Anytime. If you love Access Ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.